Some of you all need to hold your tomatoes. Don't throw them, okay? I am a Miami Hurricanes fan in college football. Yesterday they had a big game with Georgia Tech and sat down last night and I, we got to catch the end of the game. Miami was down by two, less than a minute to go. They had one timeout and they were nowhere in field goal range, nowhere near it. Yeah, yeah. There, so the, the quarterback drops back. It's fourth and ten, by the way, and if you don't know what that means, it means it's their last chance unless they get at least ten yards to get a first down. It had been raining all day. They dropped back. Quarterback dropped back, kind of scrambled around a little bit, threw it up to this guy. The defender jumped up with the guy. The ball hit the defender's arm. Then it hit the receiver's hand. Then it hit the receiver's helmet and fell down in the receiver's hand, and he fell down and caught it, set him up for a field goal, and they won by one point. Now, when you're a, a football fan and it's your team going through that, it's nerve-wracking, right? Ball bouncing around and hitting people's helmets and falling down in people's arms, and you don't know what's going to happen. Well, here's the trick. I was watching a replay of the game. So I knew what was about to happen because I had seen the highlights earlier. So, ah, not quite as much tension when you know what's going to happen. Now, you get to enjoy it more, right? You get to watch it and say, oh, I know what's about to happen. Whoa, that was awesome. It was awesome to watch it. Whew. No tension, no fear. Just enjoying it. What happens when you know the end from the beginning? Does it change the way you do things? Well, yeah, sure it does. Now, if they had lost that game, I wouldn't have watched that replay. Wouldn't want to see it, right? Four years ago today, it was a Tuesday, by the way, this date, four years ago, and we had gotten word that something was going on with Lily in her shoulder, and Amanda saw on Facebook this morning, said four years ago today, she posted, pray for us, we're headed to Cincinnati with Lily. We didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, our doctor thought she had a cancerous tumor in her shoulder is what he thought. She ended up not having a cancerous tumor in her shoulder. It was, here you go, you ready? Langerhans cell histiocytosis, which is, yeah, <laughs> fragile mystic plagued with halitosis or something. But uh, we didn't know that going up there. So it was a pretty tense three weeks for sure as we stayed up in Cincinnati with my sister. And then we kept getting the best news we could get with every process, every uh, procedure, biopsy, come back negative, and it wasn't cancerous. And whew, whew, whew. Well, through that process, I can look back four years ago and go, wow, man, what a great process. That was hard and rough, but man, God's grace. If I'd known that at the beginning, it would have definitely changed the way that I went through it, wouldn't it? Just like the same as watching that football game. I knew how it ended, so I was going to rejoice. What we're going to look at today is some people, some people who knew the end from the beginning, who knew what was going to happen, some people who didn't, some people who were told what was going to happen and they still didn't get it. And I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin in Ezra chapter 1. How sovereign is sovereign? 
Tuck that away. Okay. If you would stand, we're going to read Ezra chapter 1, the whole chapter, 11 verses. I think you can handle it. And we're going to finish Ezra 1 today. See, this is not like Romans. This is a, different, a whole different procedure here. This is narrative. This is not uh, in-depth. But we will go up verse by verse just the same. So, we stand because we are receiving the very words of God. And that's awesome. The word of God for the people of God. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let me pray. God, you have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. I pray that you would give us a vision of a really big, strong, mighty, wonderful God this morning as we look into your word. May your spirit open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see, to receive, and to live out the truth that we're about to receive. Help us, God, because we need it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, let me warn you up front. Well, I said warn you. Let me tell you up front. I don't want to warn you. <clears throat> We're going to read some long passages of Scripture today, okay, to set some more context. After last week's overview, we're going to zoom in today, okay? We're going to zoom in to this particular era, and we're going to see what the Bible says about how this scene was set. So when we come to these long passages of Scripture, stay engaged with them, okay? Because <laughs> as I went back and looked through them again, I'm thinking, maybe I should cut this out. I couldn't. I just couldn't. And that's the hardest part of preaching to me is cutting out things because you're like, I really need to say that. That needs to be in there. And I just couldn't cut any of these scriptures out. So stay engaged with the Word. It'll be up here. If you have a Bible, engage it there in front of you too, however you want to do it. So we're going to start with verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Okay. So let's zero in here on what's going on historically here. If you were here last week, we talked about the five foreign onslaughts. Remember I said I like to say five foreign onslaughts. 
that had taken place over the divided kingdom of kingdoms of Israel and Judah. At one point, this was one nation. It was just Israel. And then after Solomon's death, it split up into two. The northern kingdom of Israel made up of ten tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah, which was made up of Judah and Benjamin and some Levites and half-tribe of Manasseh. It's real weird. But we'll say two, two tribes, okay? So we looked at that last week. Now, Assyria had taken the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. Assyria, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, Assyria. And then Babylon came in in 587 B.C. and took the southern kingdom of Judah. And they actually, in that process, starting in like 605 or so, there were three separate deportations. Nebuchadnezzar was moving in, but he finally did everything he was doing in 587 and took Jerusalem, and it was all over. But there were three stages of deportations there, 605, 598, and 587 B.C. Okay. Now, what I want to look at in this next passage is the final stage of these deportations. And it records it, actually records it in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We're going to read the 2 Kings portion. Okay. Now, at that, ti- now, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem. And the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim the king of Judah gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and the officials and his, and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord. Hold on to that. And the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. Sorry. None remained except the poorest people in the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Madaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now, again, we've got a Babylonian setting up the king who's going to reign over Jerusalem, which is now Babylon's possession. Zedekiah, this newly appointed king who had just been renamed, was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil, the king did, in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. And you've got to read First and Second Kings to understand this. He did this according to so-and-so. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and, Ju- and Ju- Judah that he cast them out from his presence. God did that. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Sounds smart, doesn't it? And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Now how long was that? Two full years this city's under siege. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, now watch this, and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. 
They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, the temple, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be wine dressers, vine dressers, and plowmen. Now here you go. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also and the bowls. What was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver." As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. Almost done. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Last verse. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the, king, in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Now this was not a pretty picture. This was awful. This was terrible. This was more than humiliating. The king gets caught after he rebels. They kill his sons in front of him. This is after they'd already been under siege for many years. Kill his sons in front of him. They put out his eyes. They march him to Babylon, a thousand miles across the desert. They burn down every nice house. They burn down the temple. They take the bowls and the plates and the censers and the snuffers. They take the big columns and break them apart. They take this sea, which was a big container that held water. They broke it in pieces and everything that had any value at all was taken into Babylon. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land after a long, drawn-out process. You got one king deposed, another installed, who rebelled, and then Nebuchadnezzar lowered the hammer and just ransacked Jerusalem. Look back at verses 13 through 17. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also and the bowls. What was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver and then he talks about how they broke apart the bronze and how big they were. This was nasty. So here, they tore down the temple, broke up the big beautiful structure, and carted off the precious metals back to Babylon, even taking the pots and shovels and snuffers and dishes and service vessels and fire pans and bowls. They took it all back to Babylon because they could. Now, what were 
the people from Judah thinking at this time? We've actually got it recorded. Lamentations 1, 1 through 8. Well, listen to this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughters of Zion all her majesty was departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Now I read this passage for a particular reason. Let me go back to verse 5. I want to point something out, and I kind of pointed it out as I was saying it there. If you look there, who afflicted Jerusalem? Babylon? Yes, but... What was the root cause? What was the uncaused cause of all of this affliction? God was. The Lord has afflicted her. Now that's pretty important. God did this. God did this to God's people. And God did this to God's people for God's glory. Because they sinned and forsook Him. Do you remember what they did? They didn't let the land have its Sabbaths. He told them every seven years, don't farm the land. And so they go 490 years without giving the land its rest. So God says, okay, that's 70 years that that you owe the land rest. So I'm going to take you away for 70 years. I'm going to take you away for 70 years. And He did it. And He did it through the Babylonians. They sinned and forsook Him, so He delivered them over to be judged. Them and their plates and their bowls and their forks and all. And now... These many years later in the book of Ezra, the kingdom of Babylon had fallen to the kingdom of Persia, who then inherited the lands, peoples, and things that had been Babylon's. Now after three years of sharing power with a man named Darius, whose name you might recognize from the book of Daniel, after three years of sharing power with him, Cyrus becomes the all-powerful ruler of the Persian empire. So a man named Cyrus, who we see in Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus... King of Persia. So what happened then? Cyrus did something peculiar and he did it for a particular reason. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now if you remember from last week, we mentioned these prophecies of Jeremiah. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. Now listen, Babylon sinned in what they did, in doing what they did 
at the hand of the Lord. They were God's implement, but they also sinned, and God punishes them for their iniquity. They weren't innocent. They were not nice people, and God used them. Read Habakkuk. But he says, I'll punish them, the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste after 70 years. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against the nations. And then 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Talking about His people. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. It's like they knew the end from the beginning, isn't it? If they listen. So, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, it says. Well, how did He do that? He used His Word. Now, we don't know for sure who or what stirred Him specifically, but the text says today, Cyrus was stirred by God so that God's Word would be fulfilled. Now, Daniel was a high-ranking official in the Persian Empire after being a high-ranking official in the Babylonian Empire. So maybe he got a hold of Cyrus and said... Because he, he figures it out, and we'll see that in a little bit. I think it's Daniel 9. Daniel says he's reading the books, which is the Bible, the prophets, and he sees that we're going to be here 70 years, and doggone, we're awful close. Did he go to Cyrus? We don't know. We don't know. But there were other people there too. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. All of those folks were there. And they could have come to Cyrus and said, Hey, look, we're supposed to be here about 70 years or so, and it's about that time. We don't know. Either way... Cyrus finds out, hey, God's word is going to be fulfilled, and it's going to be fulfilled through me. He could have brought, God could have brought that to his attention any other way, but God stirred Cyrus so that God's word would be fulfilled. And did it happen just by chance? No way. We trust God too much for that to be true. God had orchestrated this a long time ago and told what would happen through Isaiah. This is what Isaiah prophesied about almost 150 years before. Now listen to the details here from Isaiah. And note the sovereignty of God. I want you to ask yourself as we're reading this, and it's the other lengthy passage in this study today. I want you to ask yourself as we read this, what is God sovereign over? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of His servant and fulfills the counsel of His messengers, who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Remember, Jerusalem was destroyed at this time. Who says to the... Oh, it would be destroyed. In Ezra's time it was destroyed, not when Isaiah was speaking. He said that it will be destroyed. Now he's saying it will be rebuilt. And God says, Who says to the deep, Be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, 150 years before Cyrus was born, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. Now, this is what he's saying Cyrus is going to do. Get a hold of this to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. 
I will go before you, God will go before Cyrus, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. 150 years before you're born. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, Cyrus. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed Him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Let me tell you something, folks. This is a big God. This is a God who is in control of everything from before the beginning. Light, darkness, calamity, well-being, Cyrus who did not know Him. God was in sovereign control of everything. So God had specifically mentioned Cyrus by name before he was ever born, and said specifically what he would do in conquering lands and proclaiming that God's temple would be rebuilt not for price or reward. And God had publicly proclaimed again that God was the one who alone was sovereign over everything and that those who would question that were to stand rebuked and silent before Him. Taken in context to this point, God's people had went into exile according to His word. The land had received its Sabbath rest according to God's Word. The Babylonians had been used as a scourge according to God's Word. The Babylonians had been defeated according to God's Word. And the proclamation was made by a man named by name 150 years before according to God's Word. That's how this works, y'all. Now this proclamation that Cyrus makes. Here it is recorded in Ezra 1, 2-4. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may His God be with Him, and let Him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. That's an understatement, isn't it? And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God. That is in Jerusalem. Now, Cyrus acknowledges that the Lord, the God of heaven... P.S. Watch for that phrase throughout this book. Cyrus acknowledges that the Lord, the God of heaven, had given him all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, was that true? Not literally, 
but he had inherited the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth, the largest kingdom on the face of the earth. So it was kind of hyperbolic, kind of hyperbole when he says, I rule all the kingdoms of the earth. But he acknowledged it was God who had done it for him. But we saw in Isaiah, this man does not know God. There is on display in a museum somewhere in England, and I can't remember where now, the Cyrus Cylinder. They found this archaeological find, which was not just this proclamation, but a cylinder that contained a, 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 a scroll that Cyrus had written, which said, let anybody, any kingdom that's under my control, go back to their homeland if they want to. And this was Cyrus's thinking. He wasn't a nice man, okay? He was thinking, go back and, and worship and pray to your God. And when you pray, pray for me, just in case your God is the one that's, that's really God. And if He can help me, I'd like you to pray for me because I'd like some help. So it wasn't just that he was like, man, these Jews, man, I want them to get back home. No, 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 no. But he was being used of God to get these Jews back to their homeland. Okay? He, wasn't, he, he, he acknowledged that God had given him the God, the Lord, had given him these kingdoms, but he was not a believer. We saw that in Isaiah. You don't know me. And he never became a believer. He talked about the God of the Jews as if he was the God of the Jews. So... He said that God charged him to build God a house in Jerusalem. So he says any of those in his kingdom who were were from Judah that wanted to return to Jerusalem and build this temple would be allowed to. Okay, And not only that, but in the same way that the Hebrews were helped on their way out of Egypt during the Exodus, Cyrus calls for people around them to help them by giving them silver, gold, goods, beasts, and free will offerings for the journey and for the building project. Give them some stuff to help them out. That's what he's saying. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Now remember, we said that the southern kingdom of Judah was made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, right? So who rises up here? The heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin. Okay, that's just further verification that that's who the kingdom of Judah was. We know it from other scriptures, but we see that here. Along with priests and Levites, and there were priests and Levites in every tribe's settling, okay, so that they could worship well. Now, who went? Who partook of this journey and work? It says, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up. Now note that. It was not every single exile living in the Babylonian slash Persian empire. Let me ask you a question real quick. Would you have went? Some of these folks had been born there. They'd been there 70 years. So the youngest of them when they were deported would have been 70 going back to Jerusalem. They were told to participate in... Yeah, he tells them in Jeremiah 29, and I didn't read that full passage. He says, build houses, live in them. Pray for the welfare of the city that you're in, because according to its welfare, your welfare will be. Marry, give your daughters in marriage, have children. They were to assimilate into the culture. The problem is, some of them assimilated too much. Okay? Some of them were there, and they became Babylonian. And then they became Persian. So now, who goes back to Jerusalem? Those whose spirit God had stirred to go up. Now note that. It's not every single exile. It was only those who God personally moved to do so. 
Now we'll see much more about who that was next week. Trust me, chapter 2 is a tongue twister. And it's a long chapter. And it's a bunch of names. It's next week though. But for now, let's just suffice it to say, if God doesn't breathe on them, they don't do God's work. Write that down if you're taking notes. Not because it's my word. If God don't breathe on them, they don't do God's work. If God doesn't stir them up, they don't go. And that's always true. It's always true. And yes, they were aided by those around them, probably both Jew and non-Jew, with gifts and offerings to help them on their way. But that's not all that these folks took with them. Verses 7 through 11. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Jumped ahead of myself there. So, don't forget the plates and bowls, y'all. This may seem insignificant to us. But these vessels, these basins, censers, bowls, and all this stuff were the same ones that the Babylonians had taken when they burnt the temple to the ground and looted all that was in it that we read there in 2 Kings. Now, it probably wasn't all that was taken, but it was 5,400 of them. Anybody got 5,400 plates and bowls in their cabinet? It may feel like it sometimes, right? What am I going to do with all this stuff? Or if you're like us, you run out. We need... We need 5,400 plates and bowls, but 5,400. Can you imagine the scene? The sense of awe and wonder and joy and overwhelming emotions when some of these exiles saw these items? The flood of nostalgia and worship that must have washed over them? Some of these folks had seen these very vessels carried out of Jerusalem decades before with their very own eyes. What were they thinking? Man, I can't wait to bring these things back to Jerusalem. I don't think so. I think after years of being besieged and years of being hungry and there being no food and lamentations it says that the delicate lady was eating her own offspring. When they're getting marched to Babylonia a thousand miles across the hot burning sand, I don't think they were thinking, man, I can't wait 70 years to get back to Jerusalem and take the plates and bowls with us. But here they were, 70 years later, loading up the plates and the bowls. How do you think they felt? I don't know. I don't know. But it really was amazing. Here they were being put on wagons and beasts that God had miraculously provided to haul them on. It was really amazing and miraculous stuff. God had said that Cyrus would be appointed to proclaim the rebuilding of the temple back in Isaiah, not for price or reward, and that surely was true. But not only did that happen, but Cyrus even provided what had been taken by the Babylonians. Now one other thing to note here, where were these plates and bowls and such? Where had they been kept? 
Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. So God's stuff had been in another God's place for a long time. What kind of testimony was it to the people there watching that Israel's God was now marching these items out of that pagan place and had proclaimed it over a hundred years ago so that the Israelites could point to chapter and verse and proclaim to those looking on that it was God who was doing it just like He said He would. Now I'm sure they had doubted. I'm, prob- I'm sure they probably had even despaired despite knowing what they knew from the prophets. But now here they were, locked and loaded and taking God's utensils, God's people, and hopefully for them, God's presence with them. So that's chapter 1. Now how do we learn from this and how do we apply it? Three application points. Let me give them to you, then we'll go back and fill them in. God speaks, God stirs, and God is sovereign. Three application points. God speaks, God stirs, and God is sovereign. Now, first point, God speaks. First point, again, we're looking at application here. What did the author say? What was his intent? And now how can we apply what the author meant to be said to our lives? Ezra was not written to us, but it's written for us. Okay? So the first application point is God speaks. Well, how's that an application point? Stay with me. Now, I read a lot of Old Testament passages today. And those passages are God clearly and meticulously laying out what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. These exiles may have lost hope at some point, but if they were well acquainted with their scriptures, they truly had no reason at all to ultimately despair. And I just imagine there's probably a couple of them that are going, Guys, it's 70 years. It's 70 years. Shut up. Shut up. We're in Babylon. We're never going back home. It's 70 years. Pointing to the book. Look, it says 70 years right here. Jeremiah said it. Isaiah said it. 70 years we're going to be gone because we didn't give the land to trust for 490 years. It's 70 years. Shut up! But if they were well acquainted with their scriptures, they truly had no reason at all to ultimately despair. Yes, they would go through hard times. But God had said that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. Period. And then He had also said a ruler named Cyrus would rise up and command them to go back and rebuild the temple. So when the Persians overtook the Babylonians and their ruler was named Cyrus, you think about it, hey, wait a second. I've heard that name before. Daniel did that. Let's go to Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, the Persians and Medes were together, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, which was Babylon... In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So the Persians and the Medes overtake the Babylonians. Daniel starts reading his Bible, well, keeps reading his Bible. I'm sure he was reading his Bible before then. And he says, hey, it says right here we're going to be here 70 years. That's close. He perceived it how? By reading the books. I perceived in the books 
the number of years, namely 70 years. Huh. It's almost like God knew what was going to happen. Daniel was reading the books, the prophets, the words of God, and saw that the captivity they were in would last 70 years. So what's the application for us? We are to search the Scriptures for the knowledge we need in order to navigate our times. God has spoken and has spoken finally and authoritatively so that we can look at a finished Bible and know how to proceed in our lives. And we will proceed with hope and power to not only not despair, but rather to flourish and testify to the world that we serve the God who is orchestrating all of history. You say, well, the Bible doesn't speak of my particular situation. You're right. But everything we need pertaining to life and godliness is found in the Scripture. You want to know how to navigate this culture that has lost its mind? Read the book. You don't think the Babylonians were nuts? You bet they were. You don't think the Persians were sex-crazed nuts? They were. And God in His book told His people what would happen and what they were to do in response to all this. What's He done for us? The very same thing. So the application point for us is God is still speaking. And He speaks through His Word. So we are to search the Scriptures for the knowledge we need. Now, let me say something quickly here. I'll say it in the next point. Never mind. Just remember I was going to say that next point. God has spoken and has spoken finally and authoritatively. There is sufficient grace and strength for God's people in what He has said in His Word. So incline yourself to it and master it. God has spoken. We are to listen. Read the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24. He tells us what's going to happen. Read the list of writings in Paul in 2 Timothy when he says, In the last days these things will happen and then respond in the way that He tells us to respond because He has told us. So God speaks. Second, God stirs. God stirred up Cyrus to make a proclamation and God stirred certain ones of His people to make the journey back to Jerusalem. This stirring, and that word literally means to act in an, in an aroused or awakened manner, that stirring is God's work. Both in believers and unbelievers. Now you need to understand what I just said. God's work is accomplished when God awakens people to do it. Whether it's rulers or peasants, followers or rebels, it is God who is moving the pieces on the chessboard to accomplish His will. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. Is there anybody so powerful on earth that they can defy God's will? Is there anybody so pagan that God won't touch them? Now get that, people. There is not a ruler on God's earth at any time of God's history that God Himself did not turn their heart wherever He wanted to, including today. Whether it was wicked Pharaoh, obedient David, arrogant Nebuchadnezzar, or self-proclaiming Cyrus... God roused them, God stirred them to ensure that they would play their particular part in the drama that was unfolding around them. Now, let me ask you this question. Does that mean that they were puppets who were only doing what the puppet master was making them do? No. 
They made choices, good and bad, right and wrong, but God stirred the pot and God stirred the man when He needed to so that God's plan moved ahead on schedule. God's people were leaving captivity after 70 years, period. And He stirred Cyrus up to make that proclamation at that time to His people. So how does that apply to us today? We're going to piggyback on our first application point. Knowing God's Word is the clearest and easiest way to be stirred into action by God Himself. I'm stirred to be a Christ-like husband when I read Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. I'm stirred to deny myself when I read Matthew 16, 24 specifically. And I could go on and on. And here's what I was going to say earlier that I stopped myself. This is not some strange, ethereal, mystical experience for us. And I don't believe it was for Cyrus and the exiles either. When you know what God has said, believer, you will be stirred. Don't go looking to hunches or feelings and dreams and visions to direct your life or stir you up. You don't need them. And they're usually not accurate anyway. But God's Word is always accurate. You want to be stirred up? Give yourself to the Word of God. And watch what God does as the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and applies the right standard to your life by the plumb line of the Word of God. Does this match up to the Word of God? No. Then I am stirred to repent and get on God's plan, not my own. You're not going to be stirred any other way. Any other way could be indigestion. What was it that Scrooge said to the spirit of Marley when he came? There's more gravy than grave to you, is what he said. It could be a bit of undigested beef, he said. And sometimes we get these spiritual hunches and these feelings. Oh, man, I feel like maybe I should possibly just maybe go out and do something. Okay. Matthew 28, 18, go make disciples. No questions, no doubts, no worries, no hunches. I know this to be true. And God's Word and God's Word alone will stir us today in your Bible. So God speaks and God stirs. Give yourself to God and His Word and He will stir you. Why will God stir us? Last point, because God is sovereign. Now did you hear me? How sovereign is sovereign. The word means possessing supreme or ultimate power. Let me give you some synonyms. You ready? Supreme, absolute, unlimited, unrestricted, boundless, ultimate, total, and unconditional. Folks, God is sovereign. Good times? Sovereign. Bad times? Sovereign. Captivity? Sovereign. Return to Jerusalem? Sovereign. Kings? Sovereign. Peasants? Sovereign. Plates and bowls? Sovereign. Is there anything anywhere at any time that God has not, is not, or will not be sovereign over? No. We mentioned before that R.C. Sproul said there, is no, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. And we saw it last week in the survey of history from Genesis to Revelation that God's plan was and always will be to dwell with His people in His promised land. And it will happen. 
God has guaranteed it. And what God says and who God stirs show that God is sovereign. From before the foundation of the world and into the eternal future, God is not only in control, He is supremely, absolutely, unlimitedly, unrestrictedly, boundlessly, ultimately, totally, and unconditionally in control. So what's our application? Trust Him. Say, you don't know my situation. I don't have to. I don't know what's going on this afternoon. I may choke on a bit of beef back there. I don't know. Anybody bring beef? I'm going to avoid that, okay? Our application point is that we put our trust in a sovereign God. When things are hard, we trust that God is sovereign. When things are going our way, we trust that God is sovereign. When the pink slip comes, we trust that God is sovereign. When the diagnosis is cancer, we trust that God is sovereign. And is it hard? Yes! We don't expect God to deliver us from every trial and every temptation and have everything go perfectly well. These folks were in Babylon for 70 years after a long period of horrific war. And then some of them left their family and friends to go back to Jerusalem, which had been razed to the ground, the walls torn down, every nice house burnt, the temple of God burnt and broke up into pieces and carried back to Babylon. And they trusted that God wanted His house built back in Jerusalem. So they got up and they went because they believed that He was sovereign. They're carrying 5,400 plates and bowls and stuff a thousand miles across the desert You think there were robbers and butchers and all kinds of people who might have wanted some of that gold and silver? You think that was a nice, pleasant road trip? A thousand miles across the desert? No! But they trusted that God was sovereign. Now listen, what I just said sounds angry. And I'm sorry for that because I don't mean it to. But how many times do I forget a day that God's in perfect control of what I'm doing. Can I be disobedient and get outside of His will? Yes. Will He chastise me when I do that? Yes. Will hard times come? Will things be bad? Yes, they will. And the good news is that God is in control of every single molecule in the universe. It's almost like I can know the end from the beginning. And I can rest and know... Dude's going to catch that ball before he falls to the ground. And whatever the doctor says in Cincinnati, God's going to be in control, whether it's cancer or Langerhans cell histiocytosis. I can know that, and I can trust that, and I can weep with those who weep, and I can rejoice with those who rejoice, and I can look to God and say, You are sovereign over me, over us. I want to revisit quickly as we finish. One of the songs we sang this morning. Though a thousand may fall at my side, though the enemy war against me, I will not fear the terror by night. I will hide in the shadow of your wings. I will dwell in the shelter of the Most High God. I will rest in the beauty of your presence. Your faithfulness is a shield and my great reward. I will not be afraid. I will trust in the Lord. You have set me securely on high. You deliver me out of darkness. And when evil surrounds my life, you commanded your angels to guard me. 
And then we sing that bridge. And why do we sing it over and over? Because we need to hear this. No weapon formed against me will prosper, says the Lord. I would not presume to know what some of you all are going through. I would not presume to say, just get over it and trust God. But I would presume to say, trust God. A sovereign God who is sovereign over every square inch of the universe. That's good news. We get to do that. And that's our application point this morning. Our final application point this morning. Place your trust in your life, your condition, your good and your bad into the hands of your sovereign God. Why would you not? Some would say get your eyes off your circumstances and get them on God. I would say get your eyes on both. Knowing even your exile, your dark place, your joy are all in the hands of the sovereign God. You may not understand it, but you don't have to. You need only trust that He has not ever and will not ever fail. His plans and His purposes are a sure, no, even more sure than all that we know and see. He does know the end from the beginning. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 is where we'll finish. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your Lay down your burden. Lay down your worries. Lift up your hands and rejoice. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Trust Him and His sovereign straight paths are best for you and most glorifying to Him so that we can trust Him. These folks in Ezra did. And they're a testimony and a testament to us today that tell us to do the same thing. He's stirring us. He's speaking. And He is sovereign. Let's pray. God, I thank You that You are squarely, firmly, omnipotently in control of everything in the universe. You do not promise that You'll give us an answer for everything, an understanding of why it's happening. You've never promised that. But God, every possible choice, every possible path is set before you and laid bare before your eyes which see everything. Everything. And you have charted a course for us that includes one day bringing us into the promised land where there will not be a temple made with hands but the tabernacle of God will be with men. And He will dwell among them and He will be their God. And that's going to happen. Though a thousand fall at my side, still I am kept safe under the shadow of your wings. And I will dwell, I will trust in the shadow of the Most High God. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for stirring us, God. Help us to trust your sovereignty, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.